0: Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during the pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing the reopening of schools as the COVID-19 pandemic continues. Joining me are IDSA fellows, Dr. Preeti Malani with the University of Michigan, and Dr. Tina Tan with Northwestern University. Thank you both for being with me. Dr. Tan, let's start with you. Is the data currently available on transmission, spread, and vaccine distribution enough to justify reopening schools for in-person learning? And what do we know now that we didn't know six months ago?
1: We now have much more data regarding how to safely reopen schools than we did six months ago. Over this last year, we've learned that when appropriate mitigation protocols are in place, The school environment itself does not seem to serve as a super spreading environment. And in-person learning in schools has not been associated with substantial community transmission. When you look at outbreaks that have occurred in the school setting, they really seem to be linked to exposure of individuals in the community setting, or they've occurred in schools which did not have protective mitigation protocols in place. What we do know is that Conditions and factors that continue to need to be in place in order to safely reopen schools include many things that have been constantly talked about, which is you need to have low transmission rates in the community because we know that if community transmission is high, then students and staff are more likely to come to the school setting when they're infectious and then they can spread COVID-19 more easily in the schools. You have to have universal mask wearing for teachers, students, and staff. We continue to need to practice appropriate physical distancing. So desks should be at least three feet apart and facing in the same direction. You have to have good hand hygiene, which remains incredibly important. And schools should really consider cohorting their teachers and their students into smaller groups if possible with the students actually staying at their desk and the teachers changing classrooms. They should be using outdoor spaces whenever possible, and they should have protocols in place if someone becomes ill or tests positive for COVID-19. And one thing that is extremely important is that schools should have the flexibility to go back to a hybrid or an all virtual learning environment if there's a surge of COVID-19 disease in the community. So we know that now all these protective protocols need to remain in place and are essential in order for us to provide a safe environment for teachers and students to learn in person.
0: Excellent points, Dr. Tan, thank you. Dr. Milani. turning to you now, as vaccination numbers rise and schools continue to reopen across the country, what special considerations, we heard Dr. Tan mention some of them, should school leadership keep in mind when it comes to classroom learning activities and particularly athletics?
2: Schools reflect the community and all the things that we know work in the community have to be done in the schools to make it safe as possible. But the idea that schools are going to be zero risk is also not realistic, especially when there is transmission in the community. Vaccination is a is a really good news story. And I'm really pleased that in many states, including my home state, Michigan, uh, teachers were prioritized for vaccination. And hopefully at this point in most states, that is the case, although it varies, although vaccination is not essential for getting back safely. And we've learned that. It really is another important layer. And especially because we're seeing some surges of activity, particularly in younger adults and kids right now. And so anything we can do to encourage safe uh, return should also include vaccinations So, getting good information to teachers and staff and working with the local health department. And again, this is K through 12. Higher education is a little bit different in terms of risk. But I just think about with athletics and co-curricular It's a lot easier to manage things in the classroom because people are sort of in place. It requires more effort to get some of those other activities going, but it can be done. It is hard to socially distance in some settings, so there's additional consideration and and additional layers, but this is also an important aspect of uh, well-being for students, and again, I think it can't be safer than the community. You do have to be flexible. You can mitigate, but you can't eliminate risks, and It's very disappointing when something gets canceled, but that's the kind of uh, outlook we have to have.
0: Staying with you, Dr. Malani, what would you say are the most important considerations students and teachers gear up for full-time in-person learning? Is there more that can be done on the testing or public health fronts to curb the spread during this very important time?
2: In the community, I hope we can uh, start to curb the spread because at least my state, Michigan, is is unfortunately going in the wrong direction. And schools reflect the community. So it is important to kind of hang on for a couple more months till we get uh, more of the population vaccinated. But when I think back to a year ago, we really didn't know how to get back. And even last fall, this was difficult. And some schools went back and others stayed remote. But we do know now that classrooms can be opened safely and that All of this is a balancing act of the benefits. You know, returning to -to face-to-face learning brings incredible benefits also. And if we can use public health guidance to really keep risk acceptable, particularly for vulnerable individuals, which in this case is going to be teachers and staff, as well as students who who have health conditions and their families, all of it just needs to be flexible. But the testing front is something that is interesting because not all all, K through 12 Schools can, can have access to testing, although I would say it adds a layer, it can improve confidence, but just like vaccinations, it's not essential, and frankly, it's just not feasible. We are learning how to use it in a way that's effective, and, and co-curricular is one of those spaces, like athletics, for example.
0: IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network, timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Thank you for sharing your insights, Dr. Milani, Dr. Tan, Federal funds have been set aside through the CARES Act for schools to shore up their COVID-19 response. How should school leaders direct those funds in order to create the safest learning environment for students, staff, and teachers?
1: As Dr. Malani very astutely pointed out, schools can be safe learning environments, but they are not no risk. But there are other impacts that the pandemic has had on in-person learning. So we know that the negative impacts that have resulted from children not attending school in person are significant, and they include things such as a major increase in mental health issues, especially in the adolescent population. We've seen falling standardized test scores. We've seen decreases in academic progress for all students, and there are an increased number of absent students or students that drop out of school. And all these factors have had the greatest impact on children who are already disadvantaged. And this is likely to widen any existing inequities. So when you think about what schools should do and what they, where they should direct the federal funds that they are going to receive, there are several different things that they should think about. One is that they should direct the funds through academic enrichment programs to counter the decrease in academic progress that has been noted. They should establish mental health services to help with the significant increase in anxiety and depression that is being seen in all different age groups. They need to expand the nutrition programs since an increasing number of students may rely on these food programs to actually get their meals for the day. They should make improvements in school buses and other means of transportation for students in order to make them a more safe environment for these students to be transported in. They should make further improvements in the school environment to make it even safer And they should implement programs aimed at helping children from disadvantaged communities so that things such as school supply and other types of equipment like laptop and internet access are available. And then they should ensure that there is adequate mask and PPE for everyone that's going to be in the school environment. These are some ways that the federal funds can be used appropriately.
0: Thank you Dr. Tan. This next question I'd like to direct to both of you. Dr. Milani, I'll start with you. Do the current guidelines for safe school reopening cover the most important safety measures? What's working and what areas could stand to be shored up?
2: Guidelines are are helpful, but guidelines are are not absolutes and different communities have different needs. I feel that decisions really shouldn't have to be all or nothing. There there should be some leeway for communities who maybe you know reopening is not at high risk because it's the community looks different you know so schools need to have flexibility in that way, and they all need to, of course, stay nimble and work work together, especially with local public health to to safely reopen schools and you know I want to just emphasize that a single case or even a cluster of cases doesn't mean that reopening was a failure and you know unfortunately, sometimes it gets portrayed that way that, oh, you know within a few days the school had to be shut down. And, and again, some of that is going to have to occur. In terms of the guidance and where we're going, cases are not occurring in the classroom, they're occurring outside of school. The schools are going to have cases. A lot of times it's reiterating the need to be careful. I think especially right now, some folks have gotten tired of, of mitigation and you know, the gatherings are happening. But you know, for me, what I want to know are some specifics around distancing. And I know that some of that is coming forth, the three feet versus six feet. But I also want to know, and maybe have the power of a guideline behind me around vaccination of staff. And, you know, hopefully this is going to be, the uptake is going to be excellent, but it's very helpful to have guidance on what that means. If you have a very highly vaccinated community, does that look different than a community where uptake maybe isn't as good? My hope is, is that the CDC and others are going to offer more specifics as we move forward, particularly coming into next fall.
1: Areas that could be improved more right now is testing to identify individuals with infection and then contact tracing of persons that were potentially exposed, as well as, you know, the question about the need for teachers and staff to be vaccinated and what level of vaccination is needed in order to add additional layers of COVID-19 protection in the school environment. I think these are all issues that are, you know, we're still learning about, but are areas that we continue to need guidance in, in order to ensure that the school environment is the safest place possible.
0: Thank you both. Dr. Tan, I'll stick with you. And it's a question that keeps coming up consistently, and it's around the vaccination rollout plan for those under 16. When can we expect to see widespread vaccination initiatives for this population?
1: So if we look at a timetable for COVID-19 vaccine availability for those under 16 years of age, what we know is that vaccine availability will most likely be done in phases based upon the age of the person. So currently the Pfizer vaccine is the only one that can be used in persons down to 16 years of age whereas both the Moderna and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines can be used in persons 18 years of age and older. To date, Pfizer has completed enrollment in their vaccine trials for children 12 through 15 years of age, and Moderna has an ongoing vaccine trial for the 12 to 17-year-old age group, and it's expected that findings from these trials may be available by the end of the spring or in early summer, And the hope is that vaccination for this age group may be available at the start of the school year in the fall of 2021. Now Johnson & Johnson has just started their vaccine trials in the 12 to less than 18 year old age group. So the results from that vaccine trial are probably not gonna be available for a while. Vaccine trials for infants and children under 12 years of age have started with more getting set to start by the end of the spring or in early summer. And results from these trials will not be available until probably the end of 2021 or the start of 2022. And vaccine initiatives for the pediatric population under 12 years of age probably are not going to start until sometime in 2022. So when vaccine does become available for this age group, It will be phased in based on ages with those six through 11 years of age being vaccinated first, followed by those two to five years of age, and then finally those six months to less than two years of age. So I think this is a very tentative timeline, but it's very, very encouraging um, that we're seeing these vaccine trials roll out in this younger age group.
0: Before we close, any final thoughts, doctors?
2: We knew that getting back to the classroom would be difficult, and uh, I don't know if we recognized just how difficult it was going to be, but people are doing this, and they're doing it successfully and safely, and I'll tell you, especially in the K-12 through space and the little kids, they love being back in the classroom. I feel it's difficult because there is complexity, and things keep changing, and there's a lot of fear and noise, and managing all of that is difficult. In some ways, it's just easier to stay remote, but there's not going to be this moment in the next few months, certainly, where COVID is magically gone. Even looking at next fall, I hope that school systems and higher ed institutions really work on figuring out how to keep moving forward with these essential activities in the safest way possible and encourage vaccination, obviously, for anyone who's eligible, but also bringing everyone toward the middle. Like We can't live at the extremes with with this uh, issue.
1: In-person learning is much, much more beneficial. And we need to find a way to keep these kids in school and to get them back into the activities that are so important for their social and mental development.
0: At this time, I'd like to thank Dr. Tan and Milani for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's Real-Time Learning Network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Join me next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any
2: entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.